This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me. I'm Candice Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. So we're back once again for our special guest episode to continue our conversation about ESG and impact investing. That's right. And do we have a treat installed for you today? If you're new to our show, Talk Money To Me is a podcast where we draw on our extensive expertise and experience to help educate you on all aspects of your financial landscape. And if you're one of our regular listeners, firstly, thanks for tuning back in. But you're probably also getting a little bit sick and tired of me saying our financial disclaimer. But sorry, guys, we've just got to quickly cover this off. Even though we are registered financial advisors at Shore and Partners, please note that this podcast and the content discussed does not constitute as financial advice, nor is it a financial product. The content on this podcast is general in nature and you should seek professional appropriate advice before making any financial decisions. Now, in last week's episode, we chatted about ESG investing and we also touched on the importance of addressing climate change as one of the major UN Sustainable Development Goals or SDGs. Now, if you're an ESG investor like us and you want a refresher on ways to invest ethically, we do recommend you listen to our Need to Know episode as we covered off a few of our preferred ETFs, managed funds with all within the ESG space. So naturally, I think that's a good episode to listen to before this interview. 100%. And these ETFs, of course, Felicity and I like to make money, so they performed quite well. So in today's episode, we are chatting to two experts in the venture capital space who has recently caught our eye. Not only are they investing their own money into their VC fund, but the underlying investments in the fund all address the many issues of climate change. The fund is called SDGX Ventures, Climate Tech Fund. Behind this VC fund are our special guests today, Jeremy Little and Zamin Pavri. And to provide a bit more context, Jeremy Little is an investor, advisor and media PR specialist for climate, tech and finance companies. He's a founding partner of SDGX, a private UN Sustainable Development Goals investment and advisory firm focusing on climate tech and also the executive director of Third Hemisphere, a media relations firm. He's been an entrepreneur for over 20 years, invested in over 25 private companies and represented Australia at the G20 Young Entrepreneurs Alliance and the UN. And his right-hand woman, Zarmeen, is the Chief Impact Officer of the firm and has established Senior Investment Management Executive with over 26 years' experience. Zarmeen dedicates her efforts towards creating impact at every level of the impact economy with the goal of transforming investment and capital markets to being a force for good and positively impacting people and the planet. Wow, what a goal, right? She is also a non-executive director of an ASX-listed company, Magnus Energy Technologies, which is a lithium-ion battery manufacturer. And the code, if you want to look it up on the ASX, is MNS. And she's also the chair of sustainability and also sits on the board of U Ethical Investors Limited, which is a $1.5 billion ethical investment firm. Wowza, she is impressive. I mean, they're both very impressive, aren't they? 
Well, thank you both for joining us on our show today. Um, you know, clearly you're both experts in the room when it comes to ESG investing and making a long lasting positive impact. So to kick start today's conversation, we've been hearing a lot um, in the markets about the importance of investing into green alternative sources of energy and advanced technology to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions within the next decade. But Jeremy, do you think it's all talk and no action? I guess from your perspective, are we actually getting any Anywhere to meeting those 2030 and 2050 net zero carbon targets. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of talk about tech and not targets and you know, meet and beat and things like that from the government. Like we've got a climate technology fund. So obviously we think technology is one of the best possible ways to solve this problem. Um, and the fact that we're investing means we also believe that it's one of the best ways that we can deliver above market returns to investors. However, <laughs> it's not the only solution um, and it can't be done in a void of good policy and greenwashing. So I think, unfortunately, what's happening with the current <laughs> current government, depending on when this goes to air, is that there is a significant num- amount of, of greenwashing and, and, you know, Scotty from marketing's old tricks of coming up with catchy slogans when instead of doing the really important things like setting strong 2030 targets, um, looking at a whole breadth of solutions instead of cherry picking the odd one or two to put into advertising campaigns um, and really going hard on future industries and the jobs that will support them. Um, as opposed to supporting legacy industries like the fossil fuel industry. And I mean, just a quick, uh, I guess, recap for our audience. What is greenwashing and, you know, what is brownwashing? Because we hear about greenwashing, brownwashing. Can you kind of explain it uh, for the rest of us? (laughs) I'll do it really quickly. I think Zarmin is is our chief impact officer and the expert on this stuff. But I guess what I was referring to in the way that the government is currently greenwashing Mm -hmm. is that they are taking examples of doing something that's somewhat good for the environment and then blowing that way out of proportion to wash over all of the things that they continue to do wrong um, and continue to do that undermine or completely um, remove any potential positive effect of the odd a uh, good example that they're using. But, Dan, maybe you've got a better, broader answer. Yeah, I think from an investment perspective, at least, we're seeing lots of um, existing funds and investments being made into various companies and being relabeled, really, that, you know, uh, things are for good and the use of the word impact is being used very colloquially and not really addressing the actual underlying problem statements that are uh, going to impact society. So, you know, a common one is uh, just we we are addressing the labour market and we're creating jobs. Jobs is fantastic, but every single company <laughs> is creating jobs. Um, and it goes on for um, various other um, environmental or social other metrics where the reframe um, is uh, being done and it's uh, almost the equivalent of putting um, lipstick on a pig in some cases. So, <laughs> Yeah, clean coal is a great one. Like we don't, we, <laughs> we don't need clean coal, we need alternatives to coal. <laughs> exactly. So I guess the frustrations if the government's not going to take charge, particularly here in Australia. 
So, I mean, I mean, if we educate the investor, right, on the micro level, what role do you think climate plays in the investor's portfolio and why is it important for them to consider that? Well, if we think about every working adult, most in Australia have superannuation, just as a starting point. So, every single person working is actually an investor, even though they don't see their superannuation for a long time. So, when you're looking at the superannuation industry and all our money, there's sitting around $3 trillion, maybe close to $4 trillion, that have actually exposure to climate, climate risk. And we know that climate risk is actually a financial risk. And there's two elements to the climate risk. One is the uh, physical aspects of climate change with uh, strand exposure to stranded assets sitting in your portfolio. And the other one is the uh, transition risk and the um, the ongoing you know journey, I suppose, the energy transition to a low carbon economy and having um, transition risk sitting in your portfolio. So it's extremely important to uh, whether you're a passive investor or an active one to actually start challenging your superannuation as to what's happening with them uh, addressing climate risk as a fiduciary and just really understanding that, you know, well, if there's high weather impacts, um, heat, uh, extreme weather conditions, what does that mean for your underlying assets um, and the companies that are holding those assets? So, tremendous opportunities also with the risk. So, that's the other thing. The biggest risk is to not invest in opportunities that are coming uh, onto the scene. So, two sides of um, your your investment and it's pretty important to address. Yeah, and I like that because, as you say, superannuation, everyone here in, in Australia has it, right? It's 10% of your net wealth or your income. So, very important. And I guess it is ESG has been very topical, I think, with the pandemic rollout in the last two years. So, I guess a question for both of you, do you think with all the trends and data that we're seeing that, you know, we weren't commuting to work as much. Greenhouse gas emissions around the world has dropped a little bit with obviously the, the pandemic keeping us all in a lockdown. Do you think investors are now thinking this is the time to, like you were saying, I mean, to act on investing in, in the ESG space and impact space? Or do you think that we've still got a lot more education to go? I think that there's the twin crisis of health, health for the people through the pandemic and health of the planet. And with the health of the people, with the pandemic, I think it's causing an awakening uh, to the uh, conscious consumer, the conscious investor. Uh, and people have recognised during this period that there is a, your life is actually quite short, could be cut short. So looking at um, their investments and how they want to live their life um, and better, you know, uh, for the future, they are starting to look at that. There is a massive increase in lots of data on ethical investing, ESG investing, sustainable investing. So we can see definite trends, new products coming to market. And um, I think that really what's happening also is with that um, conscious investor awakening is people want to express their values and their moral compass through financial expression, which is through ethical investing, through having investments, um, making real world outcomes. So definitely a demand that's increased and continues to increase where no longer will uh, traditional investment products be viable. There's a, they, they won't be existing. And you make a really good point. You know, the superannuation industry is a $3.3 trillion 
industry. So I think, you know, most people have superannuation and most, you know, investors are seeking, um, I guess, that ESG filter and, and companies that actually do make a real impact. So I guess in your opinion, and both of you can answer this, I mean, what is the best strategy in reducing global greenhouse gas emissions? You know, what should companies around the globe be aiming to achieve and really put into place? I know this is a pretty hard question. <laughs> it's a very big question. So depending on whose numbers you look at, there's something like 42 gigatons of carbon being emitted every year. Um, And so reducing that is not an easy task. It's kind of a mind-boggling figure. Um, One of the things or probably two overarching thematics are end the use of fossil fuels. It kind of sounds, everyone says it, but if you think about it simply, if you stop burning carbon entirely, then you solve the emissions problem. So we just need to stop burning every single form of carbon, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, and and then if because we are depending on, again, which maths you look at and which projections potentially beyond solving the problem simply by reducing carbon, like it might just be too late because the world's not moving fast enough, we need to capture as much carbon as possible as at the same time. And that can be done through technology solutions, but also environmental solutions. Like, so we're seeing a lot of, um, you've probably heard about the seaweed, you know, the, the, this, there's, there's pink seaweed coming out that can help decarbonize our agricultural industry by, um, by solving for gut problems in, in the animals was one thing, but then just planting lots of seaweed is one of the best possible carbon sinks. So they're, they're sort of two overarching themes. Like one company that, that, that I've invested in personally, Ulu, is producing a plastic replacement technology made from seaweed and at the same time encouraging the use of seaweed, which captures like five kilograms of carbon for every kilogram of, car- of um, plastic replacement product. That they use, which is really cool. And hopefully our fund will invest in them at some point in the future once they mature the technology a little bit further. But um, and so, and then you've got sort of these five thematics like electrify everything, get to zero carbon transport, get to zero carbon buildings, and zero carbon production, manufacturing, and, and industry. So, um, and and the agriculture, like I mentioned, and so, like another really cool, um, there's two companies that, that we've invested in on, on those thematics: um, Sakona Battery Technologies that, that crosses over between electricity and transport. So they're producing this really amazing new. Uh, battery anode technology that improves the efficiency of batteries, particularly for electric vehicles, uh, and and spin drive, which uh, have created a magnetic ball bearing replacement technology. So, digi- digitized ball bearings that are completely free of friction. Of friction. So every turbine or rotary engine, which is in a lot of manufacturing um, equipment, can be replaced, and which massively reduces. Um, the carbon output and also the ongoing costs of, of operating that equipment as well. That's impressive. I guess on this point, Jeremy, I kind of, you know, what I read recently is that actually a lot of companies are just buying carbon credits rather than actually solving the problem. You know, a lot of these huge, I guess, not tech companies, but a lot of the companies on the S&P 500 are just doing that. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Because it seems like they're just kind of putting everything under the carpet or under the rug something we talk a lot um, about and we are I think in all honesty still learning ourselves about the carbon trading market and all the implications of it like in in a in a perfect world the carbon the price of carbon would be zero because there would be so much 
carbon capture credits being offered by all the amazing ways in which people are implementing carbon capture solutions that it, it outstrips demand. But I think the reality is it's going completely the opposite way. Everyone's just trying to buy carbon credits instead of <laughs> instead of focusing on what the solutions are. Um, so the carbon price is probably going to go through the roof, which is great for people that want to trade on that, but, but probably not amazing for the environment um, and the actual solutions that it's trying to inspire um, to the point and until the price becomes untenable, which is obviously the, the, the goal of it all. The question is also around strategy, right? First of all, is to have a strategy and commitment and a target and moving from um, aspiration to action. And so companies really need to start um, putting, uh, creating short-term goals as well as um, long-term commitments and then, then moving towards demonstrating those, um, uh, you know, an action plan towards it through doing some of those um solutions that uh, Jeremy talked about, but some industries we need to do recognise that they are going to be harder to um, address and um, and for those companies, um, you know, there's a, there's a cost of transition and, and uh, you know, businesses will need to do an assessment of the, the spending on the transition um, and make a credible stance um, on uh, using uh, a high, you know, uh, high quality solutions to address um, their scope one, two and three emissions that are coming from their business. Definitely falls onto your point, you know, it falls on the, the decision makers of these companies to really, you know, get these statements up and running, actually have um, ESG-focused targets and missions. But on the other side of the spectrum, on a political level, you know, do you think government needs to step in here and make some really strong policies? I guess, in your opinion, on a global scale, who is leading the charge on the climate change conversation on a political level? <laughs> who can Scott Morrison <laughs> take some notes from, in your opinion? We're at the bottom of the pile, right, at the moment. Um, just look totally embarrassing and even for us as a global um, well Australian based investment managers and talking to the global arena it, it really is actually embarrassing look um, the European uh, market they've already got legislation um, for the EU taxonomy green taxonomy they've got um, transparency and legislation on um, uh, sustainable development and financial reporting SFDR happening for the investment market UK um, so all of the, the the European markets we saw even at the last moment um, US and China coming together to, you know, and that's a really big signal, right? Uh, you know, where, what happens is fine, but signals also need to be made to the rest of the globe. So, um, yeah, Australia does need to have a very strong position. So it helps private sector get on with the job. So, you know, domestically, we also have uh, an incredible opportunity. Um, we've got everything to be um, uh, a renewable energy export superpower. Um, we've got endless sunshine, lots of wind, um, abundant space um, and, and strong trade relationships. So we're actually not actually capturing the latent value sitting in our country due to lack of policy and strong policy um, leadership. And we've got some good examples here, like the Zali Stegall's revised climate change bill is excellent. Um, and should we get more independence into government off the back of some of the great work that organisations like Climate 200 are doing, putting more in, um, independent MPs up? 
maybe we can shift the balance of power towards the independents that are being that have got amazing examples like Zali. And you know, one of the many things there's a lot to unpack in that bill, but you know, she upped the target for 2030 to a 60 a commitment to 65 percent reductions beyond Paris, um, which as a policy framework would be excellent because there would be some pressure and some potentially legally binding pressure for governments and organisations to invest and to reward companies that invest in getting towards that target. So there's there's good examples here as well. It'll be interesting to see how the next election goes. No, definitely. And like, look, we're we're not taking a side here on politics and I'm sure you guys aren't, aren't either, but um, it's interesting to... I think, in our opinion, you've got to have both sides, the, the private and the public sector, working together to achieve these goals, or we're just going to keep going around in circles. It's everyone's problem, really. That's something that um, Malcolm Turnbull and others have talked a lot. Like, it shouldn't be a political issue. Correct. It, sh- it's, it should be completely depoliticised. It's, it's an economic and national and labour issue. It's not. It shouldn't be a political issue. So in a moment, we're going to be chatting more about the returns, your actual fund as well. We're excited to hear more about that. How you guys actually screen for impact and ESG investing when you pick these deep tech companies to make up the fund. Um, But before we do, we're just going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So I want to focus more on the actual VC impact fund that you guys run. So tell us why venture capital as an asset class provides the best investor returns in your opinion when it comes to making these impact outcomes towards climate change. So I guess VC as an asset class gives you a really nice balance of risk and scale and impact. So you know, you can get into, particularly when we're talking about deep technologies, which I think we'll explain in more detail a little bit later in a future question, but with with deep technologies or any technologies through VC, you can get a portfolio of companies, which is really important. You need a portfolio because the risk is high. If you were to, you know, take a bet on any single company, you're looking for typically anywhere between... 10 if you're super concentrated up to 30 plus companies in a single VC fund and across that portfolio you can get significant upside you know some of the better performing VC funds in Australia are doing anywhere from 40% per annum to 100% per annum plus on IRR on on some of their portfolios so you get you can get incredible returns um, from a financial perspective and these these technologies scale quickly to use the old buzzword exponentially, uh, but it's true. 
so that you know you look two three four years down the track and the impact that these technologies can have on hundreds of millions if not billions of people uh, tends to outstrip most other sort of places that you can place your time and energy and, and capital so that's one of the many reasons that we like vc is an asset class um and we took a bit of a leaf out of breakthrough energy ventures when we were designing our funds. You know, Bill Gates's fund where he got many of the global tech luminaries together and raised about a billion dollars. And I think subsequently they've raised another $1.2 billion or something globally as, as well as applying money in Europe. And, and they said, we want to look at deep technologies, particularly in the area of energy, that can reduce or remove up to half a gigaton or a minimum of half a gigaton of carbon per year within 10 years or inspire an industry that can do that. You know, if, if they invest in a company, it could inspire an industry. So we really loved that as a shining, as a sort of a guiding light, a North Star, and that we've applied a, a similar framework to how we assess our investments. And, and, and by virtue of that, you know, we're not going to invest in 84 companies in the next year or two, but we might over, you know, with our goal of investing a billion dollars by 2030 in climate tech, um, we might invest in 84 companies and if they won't, but if they all did half a gigaton, we'd solve the problem. Um, but we're not the only ones trying to solve this. There's billions and billions of dollars being raised all around the world by funds and investors trying to do similar things. So we think it's a really nice way to, or potential way to solve the problem. Lastly, for, further to just um, Jeremy's um, statements, you know, if investors are looking for how do you connect your investment dollar to real world outcomes, the private markets uh, is the, um, the, the area where you actually can connect your investment dollar to something very tangible that's actually going to solve for um, solutions. So VC as an asset class, but I'd like to probably couch that or put a caveat on that, not every VC, it's an impact VC fund that's going to measure and, and be accountable for um, those solutions that we're investing in. And that's probably also the, the big difference. Otherwise, you'll see greenwash in, in VC asset classes as well. So I think that it's really important that from an authenticity perspective, where SDGX at least is coming from a perspective of not only will we give you exponential financial returns and address the climate solutions, but we're going to measure it and create impact returns and that's pretty fundamental um, because what you measure matters um, uh, because when someone says I'm reducing um, water usage and this is a fabulous technology well compared to what you know what's the relativity is it a you know did you invest in a possibly a, a very um, water intensive company that that's then reducing it or you know you don't have any relativity so you have to measure it and I think that's one of the key differentiators between what we're also doing versus a you know traditional VC asset classes just you know investing in renewables and uh, could be renewables in middle in the Middle East and have human rights issues right so that's that and, and going back to that point about impact washing and greenwashing as well. Thanks for clarifying that. I think that's a really important point for our listeners to hear about. Now, let's answer, the, answer this question because everyone's probably like, what is deep tech? I mean, could you explain the difference between deep tech 
and I guess, is it ordinary tech? You know, and the second part, how do you screen for potential deep tech companies and how do you assess this? You know, what process do they undergo? Yeah, and well, we've got a framework that we, that we sort of have borrowed and adapted from various different people around the world that have tried to answer exactly the same question. So there's, there's sort of six points um, and, and we say that three or four of these points, if the company ticks them, then we're going to classify them sort of deep tech enough to, for, for our fund anyway, for our definition. Um, so first one is that it's based on deep scientific or engineering research, which leads to commercial breakthroughs. Um, like some companies take three years in research before they even think about a product. Some take like 50, like the extreme example is that there's a nuclear fusion company that we're looking at that we really love um, called HB11. Um, we, we haven't invested yet, but I just I just love the guys. And the original scientists conceptualized this idea of creating nuclear fusion with lasers in 1948. And then the technology had to catch up. The lasers didn't exist, right? So the lasers weren't around back in 1948. And now they're getting to the point where they're proving it out and it could potentially work. It's an Aussie company. It's, it's, that's really cool. So that's, that's an extreme example. But that's, the, that's, that's an extreme example of the depth of research that is often backing a deep tech company versus creating a web app or a mobile app or something like that, just a, a lighter tech company. So, so that's one thing. That leads to category two, which is sort of revolutionary, not evolutionary or incremental innovation. So it creates new markets. It creates massive change. It's not just sort of an incremental improvement on something that's existed before. That tends to lead to category three, which is it's transformational. Like I've mentioned, creates creates entirely new markets, new revenue streams. It's something that didn't exist. Once that technology is implemented, it, it creates something that wasn't there before. Category four, deep IP. So in, the intellectual property is typically protected with a family of patents, um, not just one, and, and across multiple jurisdictions, or at the very least, the, the tech is patentable. And, and, and it's, there's a whole bunch of economic reasons or, or commercial reasons behind that as well, because deep intellectual property builds more valuable companies over the, over the longer term. But that's a category that, that we look closely at. By virtue of that, they've had heavy investment in R&D over, over a long time, and that often includes trials or pilots, which is sort of category six. We, we like to see that this, the tech's been piloted in an environment, either at the min, at that meta minimum, minimum the laboratory environment, but ideally a commercial environment. So we look at those, and, and if we get you know, three or four of the, of the six, then that's a, a tick for us on deep tech. Great. That's a great definition. Now, everyone can walk away from this knowing what deep tech is when they come across it again. <laughs> so one area that really stood out to me in those six criterias, Jeremy, was that it sounds like the main crux is, does this technology company solve a climate change problem, right? What role does impact play in your opinion within the fund and how do you assess companies when it comes to their impact to make that decision? It's um, a great question for differentiating us between, um, you know, how we invest and, and one of those criteria in looking at uh, deep tech companies is what is their impact footprint. And so it could be um, things that are outputs of, of that deep tech company. And we use that measurement that um, uh, Jeremy said that the first cut, if you like, of the impact um, eligibility um, to come into the portfolio is uh, has this company got the ability to reduce that half a gigaton 
of uh, greenhouse gas emissions um, per annum within the 10 years. Now, that's a really important um, criteria and it's actually uh, a filter. So we've had, as an investment committee, uh, quite a lot of debate on uh, could this potentially do it or not? Um, And we go back to the founders and say, well, you know, create your proxy and and let's see how um, how this can actually um, give us a line of sight and and with also that we also um, you know look at other impact elements um, not only the the e factors if you like which is the greenhouse gas emissions but also the um, I wouldn't say secondary impacts because that's how typically people talk, the secondary and the third impact and the fourth order impact, but the social aspect. So one of the companies we're also looking at is um, focused on um, the last energy mile and addressing that problem in Nigeria. So giving access to energy um, to people in remote um, villages, um, you know, that has um, impact metrics, if you like, on health. Um, they don't, um, you know, uh, families don't have to use wood, um, coal, dirty, um, dirty energy. Have got clean energy, um, health impacts, um, societal impacts, economic impacts um, that that continue. So we look at a multitude of um, impact factors, but our first one is um, the the E part, which is the the greenhouse gas emissions reductions um, and that potential. And a follow-up on that, you know, there's a lot of interest, as you guys are mentioning, in the EHT space and impact funds. Maybe just provide us and our listeners more background on the views and the difference between the two and how you apply this to your fund. So if you think about there's the the alphabet soup of um, responsible investing, RI, SRI, ESG, impact, II, it keeps on continuing. So So many acronyms. (laughs) So many acronyms. So the fundamental thing is – uh really there's a delta factor between ESG and impact investing. Um, there's a few of those things actually. Um, if you think about ESG, it really focuses on, first of all, risk mitigation on the company, on the underlying asset, looking at, um, you know, how does this company, how does the environment and its surroundings impact the actual company? So it's very company uh, focused um, and looks at outputs possibly. Um, so companies like, say, for instance, MasterCard may have a fantastic um, uh, ESG practices. You know, it looks after its people. It's got a good footprint. It's highly rated um, as uh, from the agencies as a good um, ESG scorecard um, through data service providers. It's got a low carbon footprint, but does it actually really have a strong sustainability and impact related outcome? So that could be one. Or it could be something like even Philip Morris, when you're looking at ESG, um, you know, it could have, again, a strong ESG practice, a high scorecard, low carbon footprint, but is it ethical and is it causing, if you look at it from an impact lens, it's causing tremendous health outcomes. So when you look at the impact, when you're using an impact lens, the actual investment universe changes, the way you look at things change. It could be the same same investment company, but just looked at in a different way, and it would be screened out. And so, impact is really about problem orientated solutions. It's and, and investments. So it's not looking from top down. Uh, it's looking from bottom up. And uh, the, there's a few key factors: the intentionality, the additionality that that investment's going to bring to the market, access, um, and addressing the sustainable development goals is is the true north of uh, impact investing. So ESG is very company focused. Impact is 
addressing systemic issues in the marketplace and how do we solve for those big, um, big hairy uh, challenges. That's a fantastic quote. I think we need to take that, um, plaster it everywhere. <laughs> I think that's the crux of the whole interview right now. So I just want to ask on that point, when you are assessing these companies and I guess in your experience in, in, the, in the impact investing space, is there any material difference between if you just focus on ESG investing, let's say you get 25% KGAR return versus impact investing? Yeah, you're you going to make more as an investor, do you think? I think that if you look at traditional markets, you have, say, for instance, and I'll, I will answer the question in a roundabout way. If you look at your um, equity portfolio in your superannuation fund, you'll have a, a range of fund managers running uh, equity funds management. You'll get a range of returns and you'll get a range of risk profiles. Even across asset classes, you'll get a range of returns. The same goes for ESG. There are studies that show that when you're investing in sustainable companies, that there is long-term value creation and they are more sustainable and create more financial return. With impact, the data is still not as it's, it's only been around maybe 10 years. Um, SDGs are five years old. So it's hard to make a benchmark really for impact investing. On the returns profile, if you think about what Jeremy said about um, VC returns and exponential returns with impact, you know, that VC asset class with impact is there, right? It, it can out. It's a standout. Um, what we do need to recognise is that the marketplace um, is shifting towards actually not necessarily counting, but valuing and valuing um, impact returns, meaning, you know, we want to make a difference and we need to actually measure it. So think about goodwill, IP, patents. We're starting to have um, conscious investors wanting to um, calculate and measure what is that impact footprint? How am I actually really making a difference? So that is actually a key component that sits side by side with financial returns. And um, I can say from looking at our fund, we do not compromise on financial returns because we want to invest with impact returns as well. They actually are sitting side by side. So there's no um, you know, sacrifice, if you like, of financial returns because we're applying a certain methodology um, versus another. There's actually a really simple, I think, way of just looking at that one metric. Like if we look at a company like Spindrive or Sakona that, that want to get to half a gigaton per year within 10 years of carbon emissions reductions, and then you work the numbers on how many companies do they need to sell to? What does their annual sales volume need to be to be generating that impact? They're decacorns multiple times over when they get to that point. So why would you not want to use something like that as a North Star for a company? It's, you'd, you'd be crazy not to. So there's no, um, there's, there's no trade-off at all. That's fantastic. And I guess that's what everyone wants to hear. Now on that, can you tell us the way your fund is actually unique from an angle of innovative finance and blended finance model approach that you guys are applying? So if you think about um, VC as an asset class, um, VCs typically help uh, not only with capital, but mentoring capital, um, relationship capital. We help scale them up. With our um, particular structure, we also have another sidecar, if you like, and um, we have got a, um, an MOU signed up with uh, a 
an international development agency called DT Global, and they are, are going to be our technical assistance facility. And what that means is that we may have um, startups that require uh, help to get into another country and scale up. And we have DT Global sitting in 90 different countries um, that have had um, exposure into helping those companies improve their impact, do community engagement on the ground and really provide an additional non-financial um, capacity build for those um, for those companies sitting in our portfolio. So it not only de-risks um, the actual companies that are sitting in our portfolios, but it's also de-risking our um, the VC asset class. So it's called a technical assistance facility, which is a one type of blended finance um, solution where philanthropic money and, and donor money can come into that facility. And uh, from their perspective, um, globally, what we're seeing is they want to help startups and innovation and address real world problems. So they're happy to use grant money to help those companies. So it sits in that facility, DT Global implements it and works with us to say, what do they, those companies need in terms of support uh, for global tech transfer and entering countries um, and improving their impact. So that's that's how we've um, created uh, a de-risking mechanism uh, on that uh, asset class as well as the underlying companies. That's it. And I guess just for our audience, an MOU is a memorandum of understanding. So it's just a formal agreement between two parties. Just want to clarify that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess one, the one thing I guess I'd add to that is that it's it's a super um, uncommon structure in Australia. It's, it's something that's developed that's borrowed from the developing or the developed world and and development organisations. So you see it more in in UN agreements and or with UN run in investment vehicles where there has to be genuine impact. You don't get to have philanthropists giving you money to donate to companies if you don't have that bona fide impact fund sitting alongside it. So no, no normal VC would be able to set up a TA facility like that. Um, and so what we will, are getting challenged on and will continue to be challenged on is making sure that that impact framework is applied robustly um, and that these companies are having an impact in places where it's important, like Southeast Asia, one of the, one of the reasons that we have such a focus on it these European and Australian technologies and applying them to areas like Southeast Asia where they can have a big impact in less wealthy countries. And it's no doubt your VC fund is very unique and stands out in its own right. And I guess one thing that we noticed was that SDGX has recently written a paper on the partnerships and collaborations this year, which was released together with the UNAA. So could you share with our audience a little on why that's so important in your opinion and how your VC fund has really adopted this in your investment process and framework? Uh, yeah, so I, I could probably give the context around the, the white paper. Um, it's not often that VC funds f partner with UN agencies, and I guess that the the inspiration around that was originally started by one of our co-founders, David Gallopo, who's based up in in Bangkok, who's had been in the tech industry and had exits back before the dot com boom, but then spent about fifteen years building innovation portfolios, and and then the last five years before joining SDGX working uh, or establishing a UN agency that for the first time got UN lawyers comfortable with saying that the UN can partner with for-profit vehicles and fund managers. And, and so he went and structured funds all around Southeast Asia on behalf of UNDP 
where they were the the investment partner and he would sit on sit on investment committees being the sort of the impact overlay or the impact measurement person um, for for the UN and so that that was part of the, the reason that we started um, as branded as SDGX and and the reason that we continue to work with UN agencies and, and like UNAA was that we, we did that research because they were doing this brilliant summit around all the ways that different sectors need to partner in order to solve these problems and we thought it was a you know a great way to put the message out to the market that this kind of investment can be done a different way through a different lens. And I think further to that, um, the way we're walking our talk is we have built partnerships with um, various universities, um, you know, to help with deal flow and assessing um, technical DD. So we've got partnerships there. We've got, um, as we said um, earlier, the, the Memorandum of Understanding with DT Global, another partnership with an international development agency. And what we're seeing with addressing um, the sustainable development goals and in, in particular, say, climate, we recognise and the globe actually recognises that no one company can do this by themselves and a collective collaboration effort Effort is required. And so that partnership paper was, um, you know, a, a statement to say that we will do our bit, but we will partner with the the others um, to really solve for these problems. And I think that our business model, if you had to look at it from a funds management business model um, or, or even a company business model, we've moved away from um, one, you know, a silo approach. Uh, we see now vertical integration companies. We're now moving to the, the, the next generation of circular business models. Well, ours is an ecosystem business model, which requires partnerships and collaborations and that's the the next gen the fourth the fourth industrial revolution requires um, the transformation of business processes and finance and and everything else to align up because we certainly can't do the same things over and over and over again expecting a different result because um, I think Einstein said that's the definition of insanity so uh, we're, we're we're trying to ensure that we also create new business models for um, how investment in the future can be done. You know, that's fantastic ecosystem. And we do see that a lot on your website, um, which is really interesting. So now let's get to the really, really juicy stuff. So I guess another aspect of SDGX uh, and your fund, which really stood out to Candice and I, is actually that you're investing your own capital. Now, we know you're actually both invested your own money into this fund, which we love. You know, skin in the game is such an important factor as an advisor to look out for, um, you know, as you can actually take some comfort knowing that your money is invested alongside the decision makers. Um, now, you've mentioned a lot of companies today, but could you both pick out one company which you think is smashing their SDG and climate change targets, in your opinion? We've looked at a few companies that, like Sam mentioned before, that are electrifying the last mile in, in, in communities that do not have any electricity. Um, and it's it's not a, a revolutionary concept, but the way that this company is doing it is quite revolutionary mostly by virtue of the fact that they're actually succeeding. You know, a lot of companies have tried and, and not got to a level of scale where they'll actually solve the problem. There's, by their numbers, 100 million people in the world that have no electricity or that are relying on diesel generators and that are paying like $300 a year for diesel when they may be earning 500 to, uh, sorry, $300 a month for diesel when they might be earning less you know, 500 to to $1,000 a month. So it's a huge portion of their income 
and they're polluting at the same time because they don't have any other solutions. So this company goes and, and um, through the energy distributors or the utility companies sells um, hardware kits, you know, a plug and play kit of a smart meter, solar panels, battery installations to create a microgrid and a software platform that gives the energy company complete transparency on the use of that energy and even to the degree of controlling you know, the energy going on and off if, if people aren't paying their bills. Um, and it works out, I believe, to be significantly cheaper than their previous solution at a consumer level, but also um, significantly better for, for the utility. So we love a solution like that because the impact is huge. The carbon emissions are immediately traceable. We know on a per head basis how that company can get to half a gigaton per year within 10 years. And it's exceptionally lucrative as a business model. So, you know, they charge a, a, a subscription service, a SaaS charge to the utility as well as an upfront installation fee. And, and they've got the World Bank and other development finance institutions subsidizing the installations and providing facilities for the utilities so to help scale it up. So it just it ticks every box for us, that kind of solution. And I think further to add, um, when we were talking about the impact, we you know we mentioned previously about the environment environmental front, but um, this one's also got when we're looking at the last energy mile in um, developing countries, the most um, impact is actually to women, and and so um, there is a climate and gender. Um, a multiplier happening on that front. And that's um, a very specifically a really important um, uh, additionality factor and uh, an impact multiplier for us uh, on, on several levels because uh, not only for women's economic empowerment when they, they, you know, in their health outcomes and it just goes on and on and on, um, that impact multiplier, um, just tackling that market. And they and, and this group, um, you know, they're, they're in Nigeria, Philippines, going into Cambodia in really hard, hard spots, but the the fabulous part that Jeremy, you know, did also mention, they've executed. They've got great execution skills. They've done it. And and if they can do it in those countries, they can kill it in uh, Australia, in remote re regional uh, Australia or, or any other country. So that's what we mean about transforming countries uh, at the country level, which is super exciting for us. That's our favourite one. So exciting and that's fantastic. And I guess just for our audience, um, the reason that we can't actually, they can't actually say the company is they're just finalising their investment in DD. Um, I guess for disclosure reasons, they can't mention it, but don't worry because we're going to be following the story and we'll update you on the impressive business once we can and once it's released. Um, now we've got one more question and it's very, very, very important. Um, coffee, tea or tequila? What's your preference? <laughs> right Very now, important. right now, it's bloody tequila. <laughs> um, uh, to solve for the world's problems, um, it sits very heavily on my shoulders. Uh, and, um, you know, you know, all of us in our team have made some significant um, sacrifices to to follow this dream and to really align head, hand, and heart. So yeah, there's times for the tequila, um, and and we will be celebrating after we close one of these de these deals, which that's for sure. The tea is for um, 
you know, keeping myself calm when I have to speak to, uh, you know, fund managers when I'm advising on impact and uh, when I see um, impact wash happening. It's, it's, it's quite a painful process, so I have to calm myself down and I think uh, coffee to keep me awake at night because I'm running global hours. So I think all three. How about that one? <laughs> and I just go Cafe Patron, but I think they took it off the market soon, which is devastating. I thought they were yeah. taking it off the market, yeah. <laughs> no, but, That's yeah, no good. You'll have to um, stuck up or yeah. is it all gone already? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, probably, probably coffee otherwise most of the time. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely need your morning coffee. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We, You know, that was such a great episode and our listeners are going to absolutely love it. Now, if you'd like to get in contact with either Candice or I or to find out more about SDGX Venture climate change tech fund or deep tech fund you know where should our listeners reach out to you uh so sdgx.io is the website um but we're pretty accessible on linkedin i think is probably the easiest way for for, for me anyways um, i don't know about you yes yeah, same yeah, so fantastic. Jeremy, so you can Jeremy Little with these, which you'll probably see in the night. That was such a fantastic episode. I mean, that was, I'm just a bit, I guess, mind blown right now about how much we just learned. Um, you know, it'd be really, really great if you could tell us what you thought was interesting. I mean, send us a message or you can slide into our DMs, like Candice said in last episode. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, guys, to follow our Instagram for daily market updates. Also, any stock updates for our Autopads stocks that we're talking about um, and our handle just to remind you all is at talk money to me podcast or like Felicity said slide into the dm that's it and every day we will post a before the open to let you know what happened last night in the u.s and we'll also do our late line which will give a little bit of an overview of kind of what happened that day and we will definitely keep you updated whether it's on a new episode or whether it's on our instagram about who this company is that sdgx is investing in because it sounds fantastic and we need to get in. All right. Stay tuned on that. Until next time. See you and remember, invest your money with an impact. Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.